welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. This week, I was happy to chat with the critic Beatrice Loiza again, whom you might know from her reviews in the New York Times and her essays in Reverse Shot and other publications. We caught up with In the Heights and another different sort of musical movie, Bo Burnham's Inside. And since we hadn't seen Fast 9 yet, I picked a replacement and talked about that instead. Walter Hill's The Driver, with Ryan O'Neill, Bruce Dern, and Isabella Gianni. Beatrice also talks about a rediscovered George Romero movie, Amusement Park, and I share a few highlights from my viewing at the Tribeca Film Festival. And finally, just because, a few words on Kubrick's Paths of Glory, recently showing at the Museum of the Moving Image in an actual movie theater. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. It's been a while since uh, I've teamed up with one of the stalwarts of the podcast, so I'm very happy to do so on this episode, and that's Beatrice Loiza, a regular contributor at the New York Times and many other places, and also has started a new job at the Criterion Collection, so um, congrats on that, and welcome back. Thank you, and yes, I am happy to be back on, on the podcast so, well, we were going to talk on this episode about, I think, some new releases, but um, also a couple of uh, twists on that that uh, we came up with because we didn't see the new releases in question. But I think one new movie that already had its four or five life cycles, that is In the Heights. You know, it's had its Tribeca premiere um, and is in theaters as well and, and online. Uh, so it's, it's very much in the world. So the question in the air now is, what do you think? <laughs> well, I've kind of always approached it from a skeptical angle. Um, one, because I, I really love musicals, um, though mm. my love of musicals tend to be the older ones. So I'm very skeptical of pretty much any new musical that pops up. There's that. And, you know, I, I'm Peruvian and I... <laughs> Uh, tend to have mixed feelings towards like the way Latinos are depicted in popular entertainment, um, which to me, you know, tends to look the same, which is like the characters are all like tan and have dark hair, but they also look vaguely like Western, like they have Western features and there's always like Spanglish sprinkled in and like everything is super colorful. It's like in attempting to embody diversity it ultimately like folds in on itself and ends up kind of looking generic i guess mm. um so you know in the heights is all of those things that i don't like <laughs> um and well the villain in the story i suppose is gentrification <laughs> um so it's about these characters or this community in in washington heights and, you know, it kind of loosely follows these four different characters. One of them is this bodega owner, and he has these big dreams of, of, of leaving behind Washington Heights in New York and, and opening up a business in the Dominican Republic, where his family is originally from. And then we have his love interest, who is this, like, super attractive younger woman who's, like, works at a nail salon, but she has dreams of going to, of like making it big in the fashion world. And she wants to move out of the neighborhood and into Manhattan, but you know, discrimination stops that. And then there's the second lead female character who made it out of the neighborhood. She goes to Stanford and the movie starts with her, you know, making her, her big return for summer vacation. But, you know, it turns out that, like, she felt super alienated in Stanford. She experienced racism and she's considering dropping out of school also because her family actually can't afford it. Um, and then there's her love interest, whose story is that he works at her dad's company and he has a big crush on Stanford girl. <laughs> so anyways, that's that's the characters. And so it generally follows their drama while also sort of making vague nods to the institutional barriers that they experience and that are plaguing 
you know, their community, you know, we see the phantom injustice of how the neighborhood is, is becoming increasingly expensive and like pricing people out, you know, there's little intrigue with like the dreamers being deported. I mean, that's not visualized, but it's like just something that's repeatedly mentioned. So, you know, all of this is happening. And then also with the dramas unfolding in song and dance and all throughout, you know, the movie's also very much attuned to, you know, the little particularities in, in the Latino experience, uh, things like the significance of the matriarch, the fact that Latinos love tons of milk and sugar in their coffee. Um, <laughs> so it, you know, has those kind of interesting, supposedly like heartwarming nods to, you know, Latino culture. But, you know, I found that in trying, I guess, so hard to embody that authenticity, there was something that just ultimately rang very false to me. Um, you know, maybe it's the fact that there's this commercial gleam to it. Mm. Uh, the fact that everyone is just so beautiful and you know i was telling my boyfriend i was like well you know it's like latinos are not monolithically like treated badly you know there's like certain you know kinds of latinos that are definitely treated worse than others which kind of brings questions of you know the current discourse around the movie of course is accusations of colorism because there's not like actually dark-skinned Latinos depicted in the film um, and neither are there really indigenous looking people in the film. They're all, like I said, kind of vaguely Western looking. So, you know, something that annoyed me is I also just found it pretty naive and kind of insulting the way that it like feeds dialogue to its characters that like make them all like super hyper aware of like Latino issues and like the way that these things are like spoken about in mainstream media. Mm. <laughs> so it's to me, it kind of felt like a depiction of, you know, this kind of working class, like diverse community, but through like the filter of like uh, an Atlantic or like a New Yorker article, you know how like, you know, that kind of media talks, yeah. those sorts of things. Like that's kind of like the, what the movie felt to me. Um, which is not to say that it's like entirely wrong, but it's like the perspective or like the angle is also just not there. It doesn't feel entirely real. No, that, I mean, that's really interesting to hear because I thought that, I mean, I think I, I share with you like some problems with the movie on, on both the like musical front and also the kind of unsatisfying portrayal of a multiplicity of a culture and, and um, in the interest of, signposting sort of <laughs> in a way um, and kind of telegraphing different things. Those ended up coming together to me. I, I, I felt like I had this maybe not novel realization that, I mean, musicals are, they're fairly declaratory. I don't know, in the style of the songs often. Um, but what happens when that kind of is in a movie that has kind of a mission like this one does, I mean, it's almost too much. Uh, the 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 amount of just kind of stating <laughs> and 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 demonstrating going going on um, and I mean again you know I, I feel silly saying oh this is this is a musical be more subtle or something it's not really what I mean it's just there's just something about the already kind of declarative nature of uh, of a musical somehow things don't feel as lived in uh, I, I guess um, which which is again weird to say because musicals are so like externalized and so out there already and uh, but I don't know does that does that make any sense no yeah I I agree and I think I've always felt like you know I, I was discussing the movie with someone and they kind of asked me like is there a way this ever would have worked for you and like I don't know if that's if it would have like I don't mm. know if, like I ever really would have liked any like this kind of musical, but like really any musical that's like so just like forcefully trying to have this social justice function. Like, I don't think that would ever really work for me. I mean, you know, I welcome like challenge accepted sort of thing, but, but I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Beyond all that, I guess. I also think 
that like the song and dance scenes for the most part like looked bad to me <laughs> like the step the sense of space the like rhythm of the shots like to me they were really sloppy and you know the set pieces you know they were incredibly sort of robust and, and vivid uh you know production design wise but like it all looked so quite ramped and, and claustrophobic and like there's just something so radically different between something like this and like you know old Hollywood musicals where you just like see the full bodies of the characters and their physicality and it's like a long uninterrupted shot right and like something like this where it's just like constant cutting from like different weird angles like I don't even know like it could have all been special effect the dancing for all I know (laughs) right yeah I don't know I mean like when there are early like dancing in the street and there's always for me like sort of visual pleasure in just seeing a a whole array of people and I'm sort of a sucker for 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 that but the but I agree like there was sort of an expansiveness that was lost uh in in the way even the way it was framed um I I don't know I mean one starts to believe that it's like a lost art how to frame uh, dances I mean I guess I did enjoy the I don't know the humor of the club uh, dance just because it was kind of cartoonish in a fun way Um, but I almost wish that energy was that kind of antic energy was elsewhere as as well because I I just felt the some of this the songs and even the melodies there was a sameness to a lot of it I don't know have have you I forgot to ask have you I know you obviously you've written a lot about theater and have you ever seen in in the heights I haven't, no, no, which is funny because like a few months before the pandemic hit, it was playing in DC where I used to live at like this Spanish language theater. Um, but oh, wow. I, I didn't actually go out to see it. Uh, no, and that's because like I, okay, like I don't like hate Hamilton or anything like that, but like I am just like vaguely annoyed at Lin-Manuel Miranda or like everything about him and like kind of annoyed that he's like the, you know, purveyor of Latino culture. I don't know. It's just like completely, yeah, um, irrational <laughs> maybe, but I just like don't like him that much. So I was like, nah, I don't want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, do you have to tell me a bit more about that? <laughs> oh, Lin-Manuel, I don't know. I mean, like maybe it's like the musical theater kid. Mm. I don't know, aspect personality, but he's just like so not cool to me. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't know, it's like probably just this gut, I wouldn't like this person in real life sort of feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's not that uh, intellectual. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's just a a visual (laughs) instinct to dislike, yeah. No, I mean, I I don't know if I have any particular strong feelings about. I, I guess I'm. I, they've been sort of overridden just by almost in a mercenary way, being kind of impressed by the path of, of Hamilton. I guess, um, which is probably the wrong way to think about it. But yeah, I mean, this movie. It's crazy to have a movie that wants to come across as so so energetic and tap into, you know, natural and organic um, energies and, and cultural <laughs> energies. And, but at the same time, just kind of feel mechanical to me. I don't know. Yeah. Like, you know, as you said, you know, kind of making sure it's hitting these various things. And so there's like a dutifulness to it, which again, I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm always of two minds. Like I, I get it. You know, you, it's, it's kind of like, here's a chance to do as much as, as you could and if showing things and, dramatizing lives and experiences that I haven't seen as much on screen, but um, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I also like, I'm kind of curious how this is all going to play out with, uh, you know, West Side Story um, coming up and not to be too obvious. About it, but <laughs> I mean, speaking of like an earlier, you know, era of musicals, I mean, uh, uh, are you a fan of, of that film adaptation? Um, I, I like it fine. Um, I think that some of the, songs are like really memorable like some of the actual song and dance numbers are really memorable and Rita Moreno is great in that and what's his name George Chakiris 
forget how to pronounce his last name, but like mm-hmm. the second most important characters I find more compelling than, than the main characters. Um, I like it fine, but I'm not like a huge fan of it, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually, I mean, that, that reminds me of, I don't know, we, we haven't really talked about the particular actors and stars in, in the Heights. I mean, I can't deny they're pretty charismatic, you know, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but there's just kind of a, I don't know, goofy joy to, uh, to a lot of the s- stretches where it's hard to be too grumpy, but I think I'm more tuned out than, than anything else. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, like, and I have to say, like, it was definitely easy to watch. It just went down pretty easy, even though like the whole time I was also kind of cringing, but like, you know, there were moments in the movie where like, I felt like a pang of, of just like pleasant recognition mm-hmm. and like the sort of Latino details that they would pepper in that, you know, were not negative feelings that I had. Um, I just feel like, you know, as a whole, it was not something I would recommend, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I can't tell right this second whether it's just kind of like, gonna just vanish <laughs> from consciousness in like a in like a month or so it's possible yeah or if it'll 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 stick stick around just to kind of jump to a, a totally different movie but also a musical one in a way um inside the uh Bo Burnham kind of basically like a medley I think <laughs> which I mean interestingly begins with all sorts of excuses actually this is basically shot in some room i don't know if it's actually room in his house or something but like it looks like an attic space where he does a series of numbers uh that he's he's written and they're all kind of these you know neurotic funny ruminations and riffs on being extremely online during a pandemic and losing sense of self um or if one had it to begin with but I, I, I don't know, one little bridge to, for me is that it starts with him doing what feels like an obligatory excuse about, oh, no one wants to hear from a white, a white man singing about whatever his troubles or something, um, which placed it in, in a certain moment right now, I guess, um, that he, he felt like he had to frame or, or uh, you know, excuse his time in, in the spotlight. But then he just proceeds to do kind of the addictively uh, amusing kind of instantly digestible and viral songs that that he specializes in or specialized in um so i don't know there's this kind of consciousness and then a sort of lack of awareness as well but i don't know i just wanted to mention it because it's definitely i think an interesting creature of the moment that that this existed in in the world and you know there are a couple of riffs in it that i thought were pretty funny um, where he does a kind of frame within a frame thing, basically, I guess, a takeoff on people posting TikTok or YouTube where they're kind of dissecting another video or dissecting. Like a reaction video. Exactly. Reaction yeah. video. He does a reaction video to like his own video that he's just recorded. And then he does it recursively so that it keeps, <laughs> so it's like a window within a window within a window within a window, which, yeah, was just like a perfect little encapsulation of the like, hellish bees on a beam quality of you know online discourse where there is no there there anymore after a while because you're all responding to the response of the response and for some reason it doesn't add up to a conversation as it would in in real life it just feels like an echo chamber of uh kind of knee-jerk reactions um so that was a funny bit and you know i'm definitely impressed just of him as a like Tin Pan Alley tradition guy of just came up with, you know, 15 catchy songs or whatever it is, uh, which is, you know, I don't know, no small feat. Uh, But, you know, and and there's a desperation to it, uh, which he's constantly, you know, undercutting because otherwise it would be pretty, pretty dire um, to have to see someone actually going crazy. So he (laughs) spares us being a jokey about it. I think you, you, you caught a little about it, so you got a bit of the flavor, right? Yeah, I watched, I hadn't watched the whole thing. I've seen a little less than half of it, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I just tend to not watch like comedy things like this. So like, I'm always kind of more reserved, but I did think it was interesting. I think like, yeah, the way he introduces it, he's like, okay, I think he sets it up like, okay, what, 
could like I possibly do to like actually make the world better because of you know all of these things in the world that we're just like hyper aware of now but like what can I do as a comedian and I think like the beginning song is like change the world through comedy and that's like sort of an ironic nod to like sort of the useless function of, of what he does um which I found it you know like you said him trying to release the blame from himself but also kind of incriminating as well but you know I I do think that there's something interesting about it as like a zeitgeisty commentary on like masculinity um like yeah. I think Bo Burnham's like who he is just like as a man and like what he's like fleshing out in these little videos on like what it means to be like a guy that's like not toxic is is kind of an interesting thing um mm. so that, that that is something that made me curious about it like i think there's just one video where he like talks about like the joys or not necessarily just the joys but just like the feelings he has of like talking to his mom on the phone right which you know i witness in my own home as someone who's dating a gangly white man who likes talking to his mom on the phone. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, definitely like an interesting cultural artifact. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's a really interesting lens to, to view him through and, and in a way, maybe one that didn't occur to me. It's interesting. Like he's, some comedians have this quality where there's there at the same time, like, centering attention on, on themselves but constantly deflecting it which i guess is just intimately bound up with the personality that goes into being some some of these comedians i guess but at the same time he has a lot of fun in inside uh just kind of prancing around it, it just his underwear a couple in a couple of points um which is like this felt like a, a certain kind of like self parody in a way because there's a there's a just a kind of silliness or vulnerability uh to, to that um so yeah he i think may, that might also play into I don't know, playfulness about masculinity as well. So yeah, that's uh, yeah, the appropriately titled Inside, uh, which is on Netflix. And while I'm mentioning Netflix, I just, just noticed that since uh, we're talking about comedians, um, Richard Pryor live in concert is also on Netflix now, apparently. Or maybe it always was and we never knew it. But I just thought I'd mention that because that's Stone Cold Classic. So if you uh, are unhappy that we just talked about Inside, there, <laughs> <laughs> you can watch Richard Pryor and, and The Master. So on another tack, I think you saw a movie that uh, somehow eluded me for this entire year. It kind of appeared early uh, in this kind of the various liminal states that festivals were existing in and now is getting a release. And that is summer of 85. Yes. The French film by Francois Zahn, who's this very prolific French director. He seems to always come out with a movie like every year and the premiere that come. But, um, but yeah, so summer of 85, I, I'm not sure if it's like, necessarily like good with a capital g but it's very interesting um you know the first half of the movie you could think that this is just like an 80s well i think call me by your name is set in the past now that i think about it okay but it's kind of like that in that it's about a teenager who's moody and then he like falls for this slightly older also like gay teenager and like has this sexual awakening and like the older teenager is also kind of like you know hard to read so there's like that teasing quality like are we actually a thing and you know that kind of gets messy and you know generally it's you know one of those sun-kissed you know summer bliss romances of them like you know riding a motorbike through the countryside and sailing together and it's all very beautiful and uh sometimes very sexy and and all that um but then you know all throughout we have like glimpses of this future in which our protagonist is like being interviewed by like a caseworker and then you know, and this isn't really a spoiler because it's revealed early on, but we like find out in this future scenario that like his lover 
is dead and like maybe he's been accused of killing him but like you know in that sense it's kind of has like a like shades of big little lies you know for lack Mm. of another example in that like all throughout it's like kind of going back and forth through these timelines and like you know as we progress you know the mystery is kind of is, is solved you know ultimately towards the end um and you know the more the more like reveals about like what actually happened with their romance and like how do these things unfold it gets like really kind of crazy <laughs> like there's almost like a pulpy quality to it like for instance you know there's this scene where he's like he kind of teams up with this this british au pair like girl who like dresses him in drag and like sneaks him into a morgue and it's just like has little crazy moments like that (laughs) but you know to me it's all sort of the movie is trying to show just like how kind of crazy and just like ridiculous teenage romance can be you know like hormones are potent and like it's kind of funny because like all these ridiculous things happen, but there's like our protagonist is like kind of sober about the whole thing. Like he just moves through these ridiculous moments as if like nothing is out of the ordinary, but like clearly things are strange. And I'm like, I'm not entirely sure if that was like the intention of the movie, but like, that's how I read it. And it's very much like trying to capture this romance and like through a very like nostalgic 80s lens so like there's pop score of like you know bands like the cure and banana rama and like there's a lot of denim and um you know a date at the carnival where there's like an embittered ex and there's like fist fights i don't know it all has this like kind of throwback quality to it that kind of makes it all seem more like a dream and like more like a story more artificial. So I, you know, I don't know, you know, I guess it doesn't matter like what he intended, but like, that's how I read it. And, you know, ultimately it does kind of seem all over the place and like kind of unbalanced and, you know, ultimately it's not like a super emotionally poignant movie and weighty movie in the way that like something called like call me by your name is, but it's, it's definitely fun (laughs) and, and very interesting. I know it's funny. I, I was, for some reason the other day, I was just thinking of a couple of his earliest movies where he was first making a splash. Um, See the Sea, and then then when he did like a, I forget what if it was like an adaptation of a Fassbender story, um, Water Drops on Burning Rocks. Oh, yeah, he, he just was doing these kind of boldly colorful and sort of darkly antic movies sometimes with an actual like musical element uh swimming pool another ozon movie mm. definitely shades of that which i didn't even like i didn't even think about his old movies um because like halfway through i was like this is kind of more like christophe on but then it got mm. like, weird and i was like no oh. um and of course he already has a new one uh, that isn't isn't can oh yeah yeah something like that so yeah so that was Summer of 85, which I think is going to be out in theaters by the time this posts. Oh, yeah, we should talk about one other new release or just mention. <laughs> I think we're both looking forward to F9, uh, which is the next <laughs> Fast and Furious installment. For some reason, it annoys me in other franchises when they just reuse the same titles. But for some reason with Fast and Furious, I, there's just something so absurd about the series that I don't know. I, it's, there's something vaguely charming about it. the fact that they're calling this movie F9, which still honestly just makes me think of my keyboard and the function keys at the top. <laughs> I, I just love that they, they did that. I mean, the next one, I mean, yeah, next one could just be called like car movie, you know, I mean, they, they, they're at that point, you know, uh, of that. But you're, you're a fan of these, movies, right? or at least a couple. Yeah, no, I, I, I've seen... I think I've seen all of them, but I've only recently like rewatched the first two and they're, they're just great fun men being man- manly men. And yet also somehow very tender and mm. all about family. <laughs> <laughs> and 
Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a pleasure in the absurdity of how like the stakes are like increased with like each one. Like, you know, there's the joke of like them going to space eventually. <laughs> or is that real? Like, I don't even know. Like, I can't differentiate between what's real and like what's actually in the movies. But I remember that being on Twitter, like the next Fast and the Furious, they're going to go to space with the cars. <laughs> Yeah, there's just a limitless cartoon physics quality to it. And, and for this one, I guess there's some, I don't know, something about magnets. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to, to that. <laughs> you know, it's sort of interesting, like of all the possible franchises that ever been have been like attempted and like have actually become something like most of them are just like superhero movies, but like there are a few franchises that are just like kind of like the Fast and the Furious that have managed to like latch on to the popular consciousness and are, I don't know, somehow less, less like soul sucking in a way. (laughs) And one of them. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting, durable template. I actually recently got a driver's license. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to see how that affects my viewing of things. Now that I understand the first-person experience of traveling at at high speeds, what I did do to, uh, in lieu of actually seeing F9, I did think it would be funny to watch The Driver, uh, which is, you know, maybe in some ways the antithesis of the Fast and Furious franchise, uh, a, a Walter Hill movie from 1978, which is about a getaway driver. Uh, basically, uh, Ryan O'Neill opposite Isabella Johnny, who's always been one of my favorites. Um, and it's it's basically a kind of Walter Hill taking the Melville mood uh, and fatalism uh, and applying it to, you know, yeah, a, get, a getaway driver as opposed to, you know, some other kind of underworld regular. And I've, I've always liked the movie. I, I think it's... I, you know, I, it's also was helpful reading a essay by Kent Jones about it um, early on um, that helped me appreciate some things about it. He has some great line about, I guess, you know, Walter Hill generally that he has a near primitive physical power to his uh, films and an itchy brand of existential dread, um, which <laughs> I, which I, I also like because I think I think it is. It, it is true. There's something about it that gets under your skin. Uh, I mean, viewed another way, this is kind of like a like closing in on a criminal sort of movie um, because the idea is that Ryan O'Neill is a getaway driver, so people can't really haven't recognized him or don't catch sight of him. But uh, Bruce Dern, who is the investigating cop, does not give up. Also, yeah, I mean, this is a movie I was sort of predisposed to like. Also, I also love Bruce Dern. It's hard for me to think of anyone who's as convincingly pissed off on screen as Bruce Dern can be. It's like genuinely uncomfortable sometimes, the, the, the intensity he brings. So that's also another great element of it. Just, yeah, it's kind of like an American chase heist movie, but with a, this French reserve to it. You know, somewhere before like Thief or something, I, I'm, I'm sure uh, Michael Mann saw this. So yeah, I watched The Driver, uh, just a, low, a different gear. I don't know if it's a lower gear, but a different gear than the, the Fast and Furious. That's how I amuse myself sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a sort of new release that's not a new movie. And in fact, is a very strange old movie from a very well-known filmography. And that's something that I think you saw. I saw a, a while ago, so it's not so fresh for me. But that's Amusement Park from George Romero. So this was a movie like Romero did in the 70s. Um, He was approached by this like Lutheran organization to like make a movie about how society discriminates against the elderly. And that's what he did. Uh, But he, you know, didn't soften his style at all. (laughs) Like he was very much still, you know, super cynical and like condemnatory about the state of the country and its moral decay in the middle of the 70s um and so the movie is like extremely disturbing and upsetting about you know society's treatment of the elderly and so like you know when he finished it this lutheran organization 
pretty much disowned it and it's been like buried ever since like and he just kind of moved on and uh it's been under wraps for a while the whole lutheran connection is is just in, in, incredible i mean i don't even know what the approach must have been they thought <laughs> no i just think that like it's because the organization was also based in pittsburgh and they just thought oh we'll have our hometown hero do it <laughs> <laughs> right. ask ask george he makes movies right just ask him <laughs> exactly so um i can talk a little bit about it so like the, it opens the, the movie opens with like this direct address by like the main character who's played by Lincoln Maisel and he's kind of like telling us you know what we're about to see is staged but it like touches the core of this like you know intense issue in, in the country um and then like the official movie begins I guess and you know we see him and he's like all dressed up in this white suit kind of looks like Colonel Sanders um, and he's in this white—he's <laughs> yeah, in this like white room where nothing's happening, and then this other older man comes up, and he's like, "You need to stay in this room because you don't know what's out there. Like it's crazy out there." But the our protagonist is like, "No, I'm gonna go see what's out there." <laughs> so he goes out, and then it's this like carnival fair amusement park, and. Like, you know, at first glance, it just looks like, you know, every, any ordinary amusement park, but you see that like all of the elderly people are like incredibly mistreated. Some of them are like just not allowed to use the like, equipment. They're just not given the same services. They're like ostracized. They're like, some of them get in trouble with the cops for like things that aren't their fault. And like towards the end, there's just like really, really sad moment where he like goes up and reads a children's book to a little girl. And the mom is just like, let's go, let's get out of here. And he just starts bawling. And so it's just like, you know, a bunch of these little vignettes of like, you know, the main character and like other older people like interacting with parts of the amusement park and how it's just like ultimately really um, traumatizing for them. And, you know, this movie came out the same year as The Crazies, which mm. is like Romero's disease outbreak horror movie that's actually, you know, kind of a restaging of the Vietnam War, but like in a suburb. And so like that movie is like incredibly like jarring and, and fierce and like anxiety inducing. It's like full of fast cuts and, you know, this breakneck rhythm. Um, and so the amusement park is actually like really similar in that sense. Um, but mm you know, it's deceptive because it's not like, you don't expect to be watching like a horror movie. Um, and it's showing these kind of like banal happenings, but like with that same style. So yeah, and it, it's very, very short. So it yeah. definitely feels like, you know, I don't know, a, a firing squad experience. Yeah, it's an unsettling movie, maybe partly because of the length and partly because of its I don't know, provenance, it's, it's, it's like lacking some extra act or some extra beat or some extra, like something that not in a bad way that would, I don't know, <laughs> make it any less unnerving uh, or, or give it some sort of different narrative. Um, There's no cushion. I guess. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's just, it's just like, it's like the white paper about the dread of mortality and, 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 right. and kind of elder abuse or elder neglect it's there's nothing else there's no i mean the metaphor is like so i mean the allegory or whatever of like the circus or carnival of life it's also just the setting where people are treated terror so it's like not even like it's not even like removed in, in some way in that in that way um i don't know if i i rewatched nightmare alley uh a couple of yeah. months ago which is just such a i think it's an essential american yeah. movie um, and I don't know, something thinking about amusement park made me think of Nightmare Alley and partly because of the carnival setting, but also just the, yeah, really gray, deep sort of vein of despair that's at, <laughs> that's at the heart of it somehow. Also, I, I sort of wonder if amusement park is part of 
just this sort of strand of movies in the I don't know early seventies where where it felt like filmmakers or I don't know the culture was coming to terms with the, uh, the latest generation of older people of people who were aging um, and responding to that realization in different ways but. Uh, I, I mean, there's something just about the encounter in um, Harold and Maude and how it kind of digests how we relate to, to people and finds this way of dealing with that. Um, and then another movie, Home Bodies, which is a movie that we screened in Overdue, uh, Once Upon a Time. And that's a movie where the elderly tenants of a building uh, retaliate. Uh, they fight back uh, when there are plans to, uh, you know, get rid of them. So I don't think probably to knock the building down or something. And and that is kind of like a, sort of like a horror movie in a way, but it's like, there's that dread of, of aging, but also the, the, the dread of the treatment that comes with, with aging that's, that's in there. And, mm-hmm. and the novelty of having these really older um, protagonists. There's like, there's a chase scene in Home Bodies, which is pretty hilarious. But anyway, so that yeah. came to mind too with Amusement Park. I also love that it's just called Amusement Park. I mean, like it's a wise movie. <laughs> I know. Yeah, great title. Um, To add or to connect our our new releases with the old ones, another upcoming release that, you know, maybe we'll talk about later is the M. Night Shyamalan movie, Old. That's also about aging. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I forgot next month. Yeah. Have you seen that already? No, no. But I'm like a big like apologist for him so like i'm really excited about it <laughs> oh sure oh well you you, you should talk with uh, michael koreski he was uh, on the front lines for the village um <gasps> oh i didn't know that yeah no i, I totally will <laughs> <I'm on the laughs> <bus>. yeah <laughs> no he has a beautiful essay he wrote i think that's the one where he connects Shyamalan with hawthorne hmm. you two should uh, <laughs> plan the uh, plan of attack plan of defense for old uh, <laughs> Which, yeah, I, I would like to see. Yeah. But um, is, are there any movie that you want to just kind of finally mention? I think you saw a you saw a movie in the Kubrick series at Momi, uh, which is, you know, I really, I've loved this summer seeing as all the repertory cinemas are opening up again, you know, just bringing out the, the, the kind of big, big guns. <laughs> yeah, I've actually been back to museums moving images few times I saw Fantasia and Sunrise and Paths of Glory. But yeah, Paths of Glory, I, I'd actually never seen it before. So, you know, I was, I guess not surprised. I mean, like, I'm a fan of Kubrick and think he's great, like, like most people do. But, um, but I was, I was just really stunned, um, because, you know, it is an earlier film. And yet, it already hints or already captures entirely like so much of like what makes so many of his later movies so great. Yeah. I was just really struck it. Like, you know, there's, you know, it's, it's a world war one movie. Um, but you know, you see the satire of, of Dr. Strangelove in it with these, you know, kind of comically warmongering generals and, and the senselessness of, of their military objectives um there's the the like sort of dandyism and like period decadence of of Barry Lyndon somewhat um especially in like these scenes in in this like palace chateau where we see all like the bureaucrats and like actual like puppet masters of the war like parlaying and, and strategizing um and then of course there's there's like just the you know gritty depiction of war and it's brutal psychological toll that you know we would ultimately get in in full metal jacket and yet it like it just like is a fusion of all of that and I was just so so very impressed and you know there's always that question of like no movie about war is like really an anti-war movie there's always like kind of like in depicting it there is like a certain general thrillingness that does draw you in you know yeah something like um the dunkirk which is like obviously like quote-unquote anti-war and yet it's like super fun to watch um and you know the actual fighting scenes are also like enthralling in paths of glory but like 
you know, I, I feel like this is one of those movies that you could really say like this is a very, very much an anti-war movie. I mean, mm. you know, just like the the way it like contrasts the like decadence of like these higher officers with like the people that are actually fighting and how they're dismissed ultimately. And like this, the way he like orchestrates all of these elements. I mean, like, I don't know if I can't name like another war movie or off the top of my head at least that like actually depicts the war that is also like so such a powerful like anti-war statement at the same time. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm envious because that's also a movie that the way it moves through space, uh, especially also those in those battle scenes, just those tracking shots, you really feel that when you're sitting in a theater and you kind of relate to that vast wasteland that's stretching out before you um, and just how merciless the tracking shots feel in there. And I mean, I think it's fair to say that there are Kubrick movies where tracking, there are tracking shots that are cerebral in a way, uh, which is not a bad thing, but in this one, like there are tracking shots where I just feel like their skulls grinding <laughs> underneath, you know, in some way. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, those it really is um, amazing. And yeah, the, the complete demolishing of any nobility to leadership as it's practiced in war, um, as it's actually, you know, carried out in terms of how it affects, you know, any, anyone who's lower level, um, which, you know, maybe ties it in since you mentioned yeah, Dr. Strangelove, you know, I never really thought of it this way, but and yeah, anyone lower rank in that movie, you know, whether it's Peter's, Peter Sellers' uh, attache or the pilots, uh, they're, they're going along for, for like a mission to nowhere. So yeah, that's Paths of Glory. I hope to catch something at Momi soon, also because that's one of the kind of, I, I think they successfully created like a new classic room, basically with the main screen there, the big screen. But just to wind things down a little, I just wanted to mention a couple of movies that are at Tribeca or will have been at Tribeca. I don't know what tense to use, which I guess brings us full circle since we started with In the Heights, which was the opening film of uh, this year's Tribeca Film Festival. And, you know, by all accounts, a great way to, to start. And I saw a couple of smaller films. I guess every film would be kind of smaller than that. Uh, one of them is called All My Friends Hate Me, which is a British film that is just a kind of perfect little example of the hapless post-grad uh, comedy. Uh, a bunch of uni-, uni friends go to an estate that, um, I don't know, the group of friends have, have I guess, rented to throw the, the main guy a, a party. Uh, I forget his name already, but he is a sorry fellow who immediately starts imagining that you know, everyone's against him, um, that this local that they've befriended is out to get him somehow. And it's, it's very, it's sort of set in a posh, <laughs> posh setting as well. There's also that dynamic going on with like the, the groundskeeper, he unten- unintentionally insults and then has to, keeps running into him. So there is that kind of streak through it. I found it pretty funny and you know, the, the main actor, he is a, a good kind of punching bag and kind of whiny sort. So yeah, that's All My Friends Hate Me, which uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure that will get a distributor if it does not already have one. And then just quickly, a pair of films that came together for me, uh, both relating to kids, which, you know, I, I can't deny was kind of a formative movie for me. Uh, came out in 1995, the Larry Clark movie about... Kids Run Wild. Um, so the two movies at Tribeca that relate to that are Italian Studies, which is from Adam Leon, who directed Tramps and Give Me the Loot. And the reason I connected to that, I mean, it's not because it's like a gritty portrait. On the contrary, I suspect in a way that this is a movie that is on some level like a revisitation of the attempt to capture, you know, teenagers now in some way. It's centered on the story of a woman who seems to have lost her memory. So, and she kind of hooks up with one kid and then his friends, and she's talking about writing a book about them. And so she's doing research. So the perspective of the movie is 
from an outsider looking at this tight-knit group of friends and there are these scenes where they just show kids kind of talking to the camera as a group a little bit and so there's just something about that it has a more like humane way at looking it's it's kind of proceeding from the heart of sweetness <laughs> basically and not assuming the kids are getting into all the wrong stuff um, and are not like selecting for teenagers who might serve the director's purposes. So, and then there was literally a documentary about kids, uh, which is called The Kids. And that's also in Tribeca. And that's basically where you learn that everything you feared about uh, the movie Kids is in some way kind of true, which is that it seems like the teens who participated in it, they were like, not very well compensated and they kind of disappeared from the i don't know celebration and adulation that the film got as an art film caused celebrity success to scandal you know then a couple of them had particularly tragic lives thereafter so it's kind of damning although it is very much kind of i mean the sense that they were taken advantage of in the in a way that many neophytes in you know acting or Hollywood generally, or anything to do with show business, our, our business being what it is, uh, are really shortchanged. So that's not to excuse it, but um, that's just to describe it as in some ways, maybe being a more familiar story than we'd like to admit. In other words, maybe it's not just kids where this happened, kids the movie, where it's like more apparent that that's <laughs> what might be happening. Um, anyway, that's all I thought was good food for thought about the movie. I don't think takes away from the movie, though, at least in my estimation. I think Kids is uh, an extremely interesting movie still, even if I don't know if I uh, ever really want to meet Larry Clark. Also, Harmony Corrine is, you know, he wrote that movie or co-wrote it. So he's in there as like a 19-year-old in this footage of them at Cannes, which is just pretty distasteful uh, in terms of their aloofness from the reality of, you know, of their actors in their film, of their their actors last subjects so kind of classic commodifying run anyway that's the kids so that's those are my couple little tribeca uh, movies and then i also saw in like the beta test but i did an interview with about that so you can listen to that if you want to learn about that anyway any final comments thoughts on cinema state of cinema state of the world <laughs> i'm excited for summer movies <laughs> that's all i can say i, I feel like i'm you know, despite my hatred of the nights, um, I am generally looking forward to what summer will bring us. Um, old, fast nine, green night. Yeah. Um, and that bunch of good things I'm very excited about. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our latest survey. Beatrice, thanks, as always, for stimulating discussion. And... We'll look out for your next piece. Yeah. Is there anything coming up that we should look out for? Uh, I think my New York Times reviews. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Writing on stuff. Yes, absolutely. We'll uh, talk again soon. Yes. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to The Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.